I knew that dame was trouble the minute that she walked into my office. Caramel blonde and painted nails like the edge of a razor. She had bad news written on her like the March of 2020. Said her name was Maria, Maria Bacall, a wealthy daughter of a wealthier family. It was a warm, balmy day, the kind of day that's like a sauna high up in the Swiss Alps. It'll wring the sweat right out of you, but you know that the biting cold and a whole lot of darkness is just around the corner. She was looking for something what got stolen from her, she said. Family heirloom, a necklace down at the beach, just up and vanished. Now a gal her age might normally be panicked in such a situation, but she kept herself together, and that's despite the oppressive heat. Heck, she was even wearing a coat to tie the whole look together. Kind of dame that probably denies climate change, hell, even maybe benefits from it. Others might be impressed. Me? Well, the last thing that impressed me was old Scratchy finally getting some decent whiskey at his bar. Back in the summer of 13. But I'm a detective, first and foremost. And the smooth few Benjamins she found in her past went a long way towards getting my help. First stop was the beach, sure. The scene of the crime. Lots of shady characters in the oppressive light of the beach. Sure, the veneer of the shimmering sun on attractive humans seems like paradise at first, but I've seen too many bodies wind up among the sharp reefs to believe in that lie anymore. Now, someone couldn't just bogart Bacall's necklace out in the open sands, no. There had to be some cover to slink back into. And round these parts, that's the jungle. Just a few steps away from the sand and sun, but it's shady and dangerous. Not the kind of place a wealthy family would want their daughter hanging about. Makes a man wonder what she might have been doing there. And just a few steps into the trees is all it took for this particular little mystery to deepen. Wouldn't have even seen the body if I hadn't accidentally kicked it in the undergrowth. A check of his pulse later reassured me he clung to life, but he was beaten within an inch of it. I ruffled through his pockets and found his ID. It read Ed Jupiter, a businessman that ran a casino to fleece tourists. The bruises on his head were so big they were practically stacked on top of each other. He'd be alright after a time, but there was no sign of his assailant. And the only clue I had to go on was as confounding as it was nonsensical. For surrounding the unconscious man was a ring of fallen coconuts, and a mystery that would bring me staring into the alien face of madness itself. Oh hey, I didn't see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best in flippin' fun fish facts straight to your ear holes. It's like we're the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of dope decapods. Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting-edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish, let's descend. Today on the show, crabs. <laughs> but not just any crabs. See, today's crab, scientific name Burgess Latro, just isn't like other crabs out there. See, some crabs are content to scuttle the seafloor and maybe, if they're feeling saucy, waltz around a tide pool or two. But today's creature throws the safety of seawater to the wind, channels its inner Tarzan, and likes to climb around in the freaking trees. Coconut palm trees, mostly. 
That's one of just many reasons for this crab's common name, the coconut crab. Hey, sometimes names just make sense. That's right, baby. Today we are talking about bona fide tree crabs that are the size of your dog. Okay, coconut crabs are gigantic. In fact, they are the biggest known land-based arthropod, and indeed the largest land invertebrate that we know about in existence. No bug, scorpion, or spider can hold a candle to the might of this tree-based powerhouse, which can grow to be up to about a meter or 3.3 feet in length. That is absolutely nuts! Full-grown adults can weigh about 4.5 kilograms, or about 10 pounds, and are really pretty, actually. They can be brown, light violet, or even deep purple with these neat stripes and striations as patterns. Uh, some theorize that their size is actually the upper limit of what's even possible for an arthropod that lives on the land. Now, it's huge, but it's not actually the biggest crab of all time. There is one other crab that's bigger than it, that's the Japanese spider crab, but that crab doesn't even try to live on the land, and that is a story for another episode. So, okay, what's the deal here? Land-based crabs? This show is called Biodiversity, not Bio... Trees-er-city. That pun doesn't even make any sense. To this I say, it spends one half of one percent of its life cycle in the ocean, so it still counts. Ha. Huh. Okay, but for real. A lot of what the coconut crab does on land is what makes it so cool. I mean, it's a tree-climbing crab, like, come on. But this special decapod is reliant on the ocean, not only to reproduce, but also to spread out and conquer new islands. How they colonize and conquer far-off lands is super cool, and you know we're going to break that down later. But for right now, just know that this strategy has worked, and it pretty darn well. Uh, I'll put a map of their range where you can find them on our planet in the show notes, which, like, take a look at, because it is impressive. They are all over the dang place in the Indian Ocean, as well as a huge swath of the Pacific Ocean. In fact, maybe not so weirdly, their distribution closely mirrors the distribution of the coconut palm tree. It's no coincidence. The crab's relationship with coconuts is part of the reasoning for their name. Coconuts are one of the crab's favorite meals. You know, a big crab has some big claws, which are pretty useful in cracking them open. But coconuts aren't their only meals. They eat a lot of stuff. They're opportunistic feeders, so coconuts, seeds, fruits, dead animals, it's all on the menu. You have to eat a lot to grow that big and live long lives. With enough resources and luck... These crabs can have crazy lifespans of more than 60 years. That's one old crab. So get ready, because today it is time to peel back the crazy exoskeleton and get at the real meat of what makes these crabs so incredible. So get your gear ready to climb some coconut palms. Let's ascend? To tell the story of the coconut crab is to tell an ancient story. Fossils of this crab have been found and dated all the way back to the Miocene Epoch. In numbers, that means that they arose between 23.02 and 5.3 million years ago. That's not quite as old as the dinosaurs, but still, pretty impressive. It means that, for millions and millions of years, these crabs have been figuring out ways to live in some of the world's most remote and isolated places, where life can be pretty rough especially considering the kinds of challenges they face to find resources to keep on living. As mentioned before, they live on a huge variety of islands all across the Indian and Pacific Oceans, all of which are different. 
Differences in both size and available resources can make it pretty harsh for a species trying to grow. It's not like one island can support an ever-growing population of coconut crabs forever, you know? So, much like humans, the answer is to explore new and untamed territories for new and unspoiled resources. They must venture beyond the shores of their homelands, and cross the dangerous and vast sea to find new lands to colonize. But here's a fun fact. Adult coconut crabs can't swim. They'll actually drown if left in water for more than an hour. And here's another fun fact. Adult coconut crabs can't build boats. They can't even hammer a nail in properly. Silly coconut crabs. So what does an adult who can't swim but wants to cross miles of ocean do? Well, they absolutely do the only rational thing by quite literally throwing all of their thousands upon thousands of babies into the ocean and hoping for the best. Ah, elegant solutions for complex problems. Nature's so beautiful. See, coconut crabs mate between May to September, fertilizing the eggs that the female will carry around on her abdomen. When they're ready, the female will seek out the shoreline at dusk one day and release all of her larvae into the rolling tides of the ocean. Parenting is just such a joy. I mean, okay, this strategy is nuts. It is a crazy roll-of-the-dice gamble that could result in larvae winding right back up where they started, or maybe even being lost and eaten at sea. But if you're a coconut crab, it could also result in the ultimate prize, finding a new island for your species to colonize and inhabit. I mean, think about it. Birds have it easy. They just, like, fly to new islands and stuff. Their babies get beak-fed and coddled. Well, our hardcore coconut crabs over here are literally being born into a world of terror. And adventure, but mostly terror. As a little baby coconut crab, you don't even have that much control over your surroundings. For the first four weeks of your life, you are literal plankton. Not only are you super small, but you are entirely at the whims of both tide and current. Okay, I'm going to break into a fun aside here real quick. The word plankton doesn't actually mean small, as a lot of people might think. It's actually taken from a Greek word, planktos, which, you know, in addition to sounding like way cooler in Greek than it does in English, it actually refers to an organism's inability to swim against the tides and currents. Most of them just happen to be small, but there's actually a huge variety to the term. A plankton could be anything from a drifting jellyfish to a bioluminescent worm, so it really is true what they say, size doesn't matter. Okay, fun aside aside, the larvae stay as drifting plankton for about three to four weeks. While planktonic, they are called zoea, and kind of resemble microscopic shrimp in this form. Now, you might think that time spent drifting is pretty boring, but there's actually a lot that happens during this time. Firstly, the floating isn't actually as boring as you might think. A lot of them stay out in the pelagic open blue, but sometimes a zoea will find something floating out in the sea and end up catching a ride with it. This could be a raft of vegetation, floating wood, or, I hate to say it, maybe even plastic. Though, hilariously, floating coconuts can also provide such safety and reprieve. If this happens and they find something to hitch a ride with, finding a new island may be that much easier. Okay, okay, so that all still sounds pretty passive so far, but the zoea doesn't just sit or float there and let this time go by, it decides to spend it growing. And by growing, I mean literally transforming its body about five times before undergoing an even crazier metamorphosis. So, the zoea will molt, 
shedding its old exoskeleton for a new one, and incrementally progressing in their form from what we call Zoea 1 to Zoea 5, and this happens once every four to nine days. Some Zoea even have this inexplicable ability to skip some of the stages and accelerate their growth. Now, why they would do this, and some Zoea go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, while others skip a couple of those steps, is up for debate. But one theory is that the transformation may actually be adaptive to the environment, meaning that the stages that they go through may actually be tailored and picked for the environment that the Zoea thinks it is going to continue growing up in when it finally settles. I mean... Try not to let your mind be blown here, but here we have this little microscopic plankton that has no control over where it's going, guessing where it is going to finally end up and spend the rest of its potentially 60-year life and adjusting its growth according to that guess. I mean, that is just... what? But don't worry, it gets crazier. Once the drifting is done and the larvae is ready to settle down, the zoea will undergo a crazier metamorphosis, going from looking like a little shrimp to almost looking like tiny little lobsters. This next stage is called the Glaucothoe, and oh my god, are they so cute! Uh, Look at the show notes, like, please? They are so adorable. Okay, at this stage... The tiny crustaceans will actually cease their floating and settle down to the bottom of the ocean, wherever it is that they find themselves. It's then that a scavenger hunt begins, with the goal of finding protection. The Glaucothoe will hunt around the shifting silts and sands for the abandoned shell of a gastropod. Once found, they'll slither their way inside, donning their newfound armor for protection and the next stages of their journey. Oh, right, I definitely forgot to mention it up until now, but here's another fact that doesn't make any sense. These absolute monsters of dog-sized crabs are technically hermit crabs. You know, the kind of crabs that steal shells for houses? Their own exoskeleton is too soft at this stage, so they have to steal shells in order to survive. It's a little nuts to think about them this way, because the massive adults definitely don't carry around stolen shells, but we already know that coconut crabs like to buck the rules, so I guess it's kind of unsurprising. Plus, like, where's an adult even gonna find a shell that big? But still, for this part of their life cycle as a juvenile, the Glaucothoe will continue molting and growing while wearing this fancy secondhand shell outfit. Some juveniles that can't find appropriately sized shells can even use broken bits of coconut as a substitute. Now, I'm gonna take take just a second, I want you to take a second, just pause... And just imagine that. The tiniest lobster-looking thing you've ever seen, only a few millimeters, wearing a tiny little coconut shell. It's so cute. It's just so cute. So once the Glacothoe have found their armor, whatever it is, coconut or shell, they'll leave the water to join the hopefully already thriving community of other hermit crabs at the shoreline. They'll molt and grow and molt and grow for about a year, maybe two, Uh, discarding their old shells for new ones until they are ready to kick the habit entirely. Once they've reached a big enough size, the crabs are ready for their own hardened shells to protect them. They'll ditch their scavenged shells and their ability to breathe water and truly become the terrestrial adults who are destined to climb trees and crack open coconuts of their own. But this doesn't mean that they're done growing, no. They'll keep growing, molting, and growing some more throughout their adult lives. I mean, you don't get that big without putting in constant work. So after about 
five years from hatching and all of this craziness that has happened, the crabs will reach sexual maturity, ready to mate and send out another intrepid batch of youngsters out to sea. And to be honest, if you're a coconut crab that's gotten to this stage of life, like, honestly, congratulations. Because by the time that all of this is said and done, only about 0.1% of the 51,000 to 138,000 eggs that you hatched with have survived. But you're one of those 51 to 138-ish lucky few who are ready for the long life of crazy cool adulthood, climbing trees, eating coconuts, and scaring tourists. Adulthood for the coconut crab is just about as crazy as their childhood. I mean, once the adult has found an island home and ditched its water-breathing gills, it's stuck on that island for the rest of its life, which brings a new set of challenges to face. And the first challenge is exactly that, the loss of their gills in favor of lungs. Or at least things that are kind of like lungs. They're called branchiostegal lungs. The same tissue that made up the gills undergoes a developmental shift. It morphs via folding and other mechanisms to increase the surface area and become more adapted to drawing oxygen from air rather than from water. So it is that when adulthood hits, the coconut crab completely loses the ability to extract oxygen from water. They can no longer breathe the stuff and, as said earlier, will actually drown if submerged, usually in less than an hour. Also, weirdly, they don't entirely lose all of their gills. Uh, some of the tissue just shrinks and kind of becomes more useful in offloading excess CO2 than breathing any water. So think of the branchiostegal lung as kind of like a hybrid or an intermediate stage between gills and lungs. It's specialized folded tissue that is basically gills, but for air, which is pretty cool. And in true hybrid fashion, it's not a complete trade either. In order to properly function, these special organs still do have to remain moist. The crabs have to continually seek out sources of water to use to re-moisten their gills, and this can be things like tide pools near the shore, but further inland it gets trickier, so the crabs will resort to using things like puddles from fresh rainfall or even the morning dew. Once the water is found, though, they'll wet their numerous legs with it and then stroke the legs over the lung tissue to transfer water and keep things nice and breathable. Staying breathing is certainly nice, but you also have to protect yourself from predators in order to stay alive. And since adults lose their penchants for borrowing other animals' shells, another challenge that they face is that molting becomes really, really dangerous. Once the old exoskeleton is shed to make room for your growing crab body, your new one will take time to harden. And for the coconut crab, that's quite a bit of time. Weeks, or sometimes even months. And during that period, you do not have an external shell to protect you, and so you're extremely vulnerable to predators. But, see, coconut crabs don't like to use the same solution to a problem twice, so they'll engage in another crazy behavior just to combat this problem. These crazy crustaceans will actually burrow, like dig down underground, literally. The burrows that they create will offer shelter and protection every time they shed their old exoskeleton for the newer model. And to be honest, it is a good thing they learn to be patient while floating out at sea, because they tend to not leave their burrow at all during the weeks to months hardening time. Being underground in the moist soil also helps prevent their lungs from drying out. So when they're ready, they'll actually straight up 
eat their old shedded exoskeleton and then leave the burrow with their fancy new one, ready to climb trees, hunt for food, and do more coconut crab things. Okay, let's pause and take a second to review here. There are so many cool things the coconut crab can do. I mean, floating in the open ocean, walking on the seafloor, burrowing underground, and climbing trees. I suppose the next thing you're going to tell me is that this coconut crab can fly. Uh, oh no. Oh no, 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 they can fly, can't they? Okay, so flying may be a bit of a strong word, but they can and do zip through the air. But their flight is less like the Wright brothers and more like Buzz Lightyear. That is to say, they fall with style. After all, once you've climbed up a coconut palm tree, you gotta get down somehow, right? And just climbing down? That is way too boring and safe. Why not live dangerously like you did when you were young? It has been reported that these professional stunt crabs can fall from trees at a height of up to four and a half meters, that's about 15 feet, and land on the ground completely unharmed. Whee! That fact alone is pretty darn crazy, but here's a question. Why was the crab up that high to begin with? In fact, why are these crabs such good climbers? We've mentioned that they do climb trees, but we haven't even talked about the why. I mean... The obvious answer is because jumping off trees is fun, but evolutionary biologists tend to, you know, not like that explanation. Something about fun not being an evolutionary advantage. Lame. But what are evolutionary advantages include the ability to get food and to avoid predators. Climbing is a great escape mechanism, and a lot of tasty fruits and other bits of food like to hang out up in the treetops. And that's including what some would call the crab's favorite food, coconuts. In one particularly unique behavior, the coconut crab uses its tree-climbing ability as part of the last step in a crazy, convoluted, and sometimes days-long process to crack open this most difficult-to-eat fruit. Now, coconuts do grow at treetop level, so you'd think that the climbing comes into play in order to just get at the fruit to begin with, and this certainly can be the case, But what's actually more common is way crazier than that. They'll actually seek out and eat fruits that have already fallen to the ground. So here's how the whole bizarre process works. They'll find a coconut that's already fallen, and use their mega-strong claws to start peeling back the fibrous green husk that surrounds the brown part that we usually see. I'm going to do another fun bonus aside all about coconut anatomy. See, the familiar brown coconut that we see in games, TV, and at the supermarket is called the endocarp of the coconut, and it is actually only accessed after peeling away two other layers, a thick fibrous mesocarp and the green outer exocarp. The process of peeling away the exocarp and the mesocarp is the slow part. The crab will sometimes take days to peel it away bit by bit before getting to the prize inside. Tedious work, but thank Poseidon that the prize is worth it. But even after the peeling is done, the coconut meat is still inside the hard endocarp, and that is a tough nut to crack. Now, the claws of the crab are certainly powerful enough on their own to accomplish this feat. Uh, One study clocked the crush force of the claw at three... 1,300 newtons, which is well over 700 pounds of force. Uh, A wolf's bite clocks in around 400 pounds, so, you know, comparison. Uh, And it's not just pinch strength, either. These boys 
and gals can lift. One study reported the crab's ability to lift up to 30 kilograms. That is 66 pounds. Never before have I had such inspiration to hit the gym. These crabs are ripped. So with such strength, it stands to reason that some reports show them smacking the coconut husk with the, just the blunt force of their claws in order to crack it open. Just bam. But why settle for one way, the easy way to crack a coconut when you can go the extra mile or at least the extra few meters? So the crazy part here is that they can utilize their grip and lift strength, combine them together, and they'll actually grab the brown endocarp of the coconut and take it with them, carrying it all the way to the top of a tree where it will drop it and hurdle the hopeful harvest towards hard, hard ground. And with any luck, purchase into the hard exterior of this sweet tropical meat. And lest we forget, the crab can't let anyone else claim its hard-earned prize. It'll fall right after the dropped nut, wasting absolutely no time. I mean, who knew a vegetarian meal could be so metal? Anyone for crab tree diving in the next Olympics? A anyone? So all of this effort to get at coconuts must be pretty darn worth it. Uh, research is a little bit shady as to just how important coconuts are to them, but it's pretty obvious that they serve a pretty big role in the crabs' lives. But coconuts aren't all that they eat, and these crabs will eat a lot. They're mostly scavengers, and they like to do their scavenging at night, looking for fallen fruits, nuts, seeds, and even fallen trees so they can eat the pith. Which sounds pretty nice, right? Paints a picture of these gentle, giant vegetarians roaming the islands for fruits and nuts. However, they will kind of eat anything they can get their claws on. Like vultures, they'll eat the remains of dead animals, and, well, like any predator ever, they can actually prey upon a multitude of other animals. Other crabs, rats, tortoise hatchlings, and, I hate to say it, even lost kittens. So keep your fluffy kittens away from the tropical jungles at night, people. For a long time, it was thought that the crab only ate meat like this opportunistically. That is, whenever it came across something that was already dead, or it found a meal that was really easy to prey upon. Something like an abandoned bird chick or a rat that was trapped. However, everything changed when we observed an actual calculated attack. One gruesome video in 2016 showcased a ruthless predatory side to this animal that we thought didn't exist. In this video, the crab purposefully climbs a tree and stealthily sneaks up on a red-footed booby, a tropical bird, that was sleeping high up in the treetops. And with almost surgical precision, the crab used its massive claws to attack the bird's wing, breaking it and rendering it flightless. The bird, now panicked, fell to the ground, and it was followed by the crab, which proceeded to break its other wing and eventually killed the bird. That smell of blood and death, now rich in the air, attracted about 20 other coconut crabs who all feasted upon the bird's corpse. I mean, that's pretty freaking brutal. I'll put a link to that video in the show notes for those of you that want to watch. Yes, it's brutal and kind of heart-wrenching, but it shows a new side to this already multifaceted and fascinating animal. Again, it shows that this predatory behavior can be intentional instead of purely opportunistic, which is a pretty big deal. And if you ask me, it demonstrates a remarkable level of intelligence for this crab, brings a whole nother level of appreciation for how complex and remarkable ecosystems can be, and, you know, scary. 
scary too. Talking about scary though, don't think I'm going to drop a bomb sentence like, the smell of blood and death attracted other coconut crabs without giving that statement the full examination it deserves. So, God, let's just add some more crazy on top of the nut pile, why don't we? Coconut crabs are straight bloodhounds when it comes to scent. They can track scents at a huge distance. Coconut crabs will routinely travel distances of several kilometers slash miles to find fallen food. You know, as much as I would love to run that experiment, I couldn't find any solid data on just how far away the coconut crab can smell things. But even without that, we do know that the coconut crabs from all over their respective island will be attracted to a single fallen coconut, sea mango, or orange fruit. And yes, the same thing happens with long dead carrion, or as witnessed in 2016, that scent of a dying bird. Uh, here's the thing, though. Okay, so being attracted to the scent of food isn't super unique. A whale fall in the abyss of the ocean attracts thousands of creatures, wolves hunt using smell, and even us humans can't resist the smell of a freshly baked pie on the windowsill. But hear me out on this. The crab's sense of smell is still bonkers for three different reasons. Dedication, the medium, and convergence. And yes, those are 300% words I picked just to make a sense of smell sound cool. But let's break it down. First is dedication. That is, just how much brain space they dedicate to their sense of smell. Coconut crab brains are pretty small. They're approximately 4 millimeters by 3 millimeters length by width. And even though they're small, they're still pretty mighty. A study in 2010 found that 40% of the neuropill volume in this small brain is dedicated to olfaction, the sense of smell. 40%? Okay, now brain chemistry and structure is super complex, and between you and me, listener, it is not my area of expertise. But Neuropill, as far as I understand it, is this dense network of nerve fibers found all over the nervous system and especially in the brain. So in less accurate and sciencey terms, Neuropills are, well, nerve fibers in this dense forest of goopy, super important brain stuff that makes up the brain. And 40% of that goopy brain stuff is dedicated to the sense of smell alone. So because of this, we know that the coconut crab spends a lot of its energy on being able to smell, so we know it has to be really, really important. The second point here is the medium, that is, the medium through which the smell travels in order to reach the coconut crab in the first place, which in this case is air. So both aquatic crabs and terrestrial ones smell in a similar way. They use special organs on their antennae, called asthetasks, to recognize molecules of smell. So take as an example a molecule of smell produced from a rotting fruit. This odorant molecule is emitted from the fruit, traveling some distance before colliding with and entering the antenna of the crustacean. Chemosensory hairs inside the organ detect the molecule and help transmit appropriate signals to the brain, telling the crab, hey, there's a rotting fruit that way. However, how this actually functions varies widely based on whether or not the molecules that are smelled are traveling through air or water. In pretty basic chemistry terms, smells in the water tend to be hydrophilic, meaning attracted to and dissolved by water, while smells in the air tend to be hydrophobic, repulsed by, and generally insoluble in water. And these two molecule types can be pretty darn different at the molecular level. So it stands to reason that a crab that lives in water can usually only smell hydrophilic smells, those smells that travel exclusively in water. So, when the coconut crab was adapting to life on land, it had yet another hurdle to face. It had to have some way to smell hydrophobic molecules that are floating around in the air. 
but as evolution is wont to do, over time this need was met. Shorter, blunter smell organs were developed, capable of detecting air-based odorants. The differences in the structures of a water-based crab's organs and the coconut crab's is significant, which leads us to our third and most exciting point about smell, convergence. And that's convergence as in convergent evolution, a fancy biology term for a fascinating and bamboozling phenomenon that keeps me up at night. So, those smell organs on the antennae of the coconut crab, you know how they're so different from all other crabs? They are remarkably similar to something else entirely, the smelling organs of insects. Insects! Okay, in broad strokes, insects have smelling organs on their antennae too, although they are called sensilia. A much, much more pronounceable word, to be honest. These sensilia look so incredibly similar to the crab's aesthetasks, one might think that these two animals are way more closely related than they actually are. And that is precisely why this is so crazy. So consider this, coconut crabs and insects evolved almost entirely independently of one another. Both insects and crustaceans are arthropods, sure, but their evolutionary lines diverged a long, long time ago, perhaps more than 400 million years in the past. Since that time, they have been evolving and adapting pretty separately. But both groups ended up having the same need to smell odors through the air, and that same need, that same pressure, ended up engineering almost the same organ twice, independent of the other group's influence. There was no bug-on-crab action happening to pass insect-derived characteristics to crabs, no. No, this is just natural selection at play, manifesting as this physical little nugget of wonder. And not only that, natural selection also engineered remarkably similar behaviors. Coconut crabs flick their antennae just like insects do in order to enhance their reception and more accurately capture a picture of the odors in space and time. Evolution is so cool. Alright, there is one final point I want to nerd out over before we move on from the sense of smell, and that is their superhuman ability to smell carbon dioxide. You know, that stuff that we breathe out and of course produce when we burn fossil fuels, carbon dioxide is pretty much everywhere. Yet it has to be present in really high concentrations for us humans to smell it, and the crabs can detect it just like a normal odor. Of course, it makes sense, because the dead flesh of carrion emits carbon dioxide as it rots, and, you know, dead animals are one of their food sources. But even if it makes sense, I find the ability to smell CO2 just really, really cool. And, oh, insects can do this too, so double points for convergent evolution. Yeah! Holy coconuts, Batman. This animal is something else. But, as I love to do here on the show, I want to spend our last segments talking about the relationship that coconut crabs have with us humans. So, what if I told you that the coconut crab isn't the only common name they go by? This crab also has earned a more infamous-sounding moniker, that of the robber crab. But how could a crab be a thief? Do they wear tiny little masks and train in stealth to pull off grand casino heists? Well, no, but they do have an apparent penchant for kleptomania, targeting all sorts of human items. These kleptomaniac crustaceans can and will steal anything that is unattended and not bolted down in their territory. This is perhaps no more perfectly illustrated in the 1906 account 
of Henry N. Ridley, an English naturalist who wrote, <laughs> Burgess was more than troublesome this night, coming into the tent several times. One stole a saucepan, others took away old tins. The robber crabs, Burgess Latro, invaded the tents and stole a boot and a killing bottle, which was found the next day broken under a pile of cut bushes. The Burgess was abundant here and constantly entered the tents at night. One seized a towel while dinner was being cooked, and during the night one conveyed outside the tent a bottle of quinine lying near my head. It was found open but unbroken a short way off. Throughout time since then, this behavior has been noted again and again. Cooking utensils, whiskey bottles, even machetes have been stolen by the robber crab. Which, like, come on, is there some sort of underground crab battle arena? Let's go! Okay, so silly knife fighting fantasy stories aside, obviously the crabs have no use for forks, bottles, or wristwatches but a lot of the things that they nab tend to put off interesting smells, so they likely grab them to investigate whether or not they're food. So, more than likely, it's a survival instinct, not some malicious intent to steal our things. But who knows, maybe the crabs just really want our booze. The truths and legends about the robber crab's penchant for stealing things have even been reflected in our popular media. Now, I didn't realize this at first, but have you ever seen the movie Moana? It's a, it's a little film, you know, from a tiny animation studio called, oh, I don't know, Disney? I'd rather be shiny. Ring a bell? Even if you haven't seen the movie, there's a character in it, Tama Toa, who is a great character and he serves as one of the antagonists of this film. He's a giant crab that lives in the realm of monsters, and he covers himself in all manner of valuables, treasure, and all things shiny. And, of course, he can belt out a kick-butt musical number that will get stuck in your head. But, that aside, think about it. It's a non-aquatic, absolutely gigantic, shiny, thieving crab with massive claws. You cannot tell me that Tamatoa was not inspired by the coconut crab. You just can't. I will not change my mind on this. Okay, so stealing from us is a bit of an annoying habit, but they don't just take from us. We've also taken from them, too, in the form of hunting them for their meat. On some islands throughout their range, the coconut crab is considered a delicacy, and populations have been pretty threatened by extensive human hunting. That is to say nothing of the rumor on some islands that the crab meat is actually an aphrodisiac. Which, as a scientist, I'd be remiss to remind you that research has yet to find substantial evidence that natural food can act as aphrodisiacs, so don't go seeking coconut crab meat thinking it'll get you in the mood. Please? In fact, I actually wouldn't advise you go eating coconut crab at all. I mean, I know the name alone makes it sound delicious, but eating the meat may actually pose a threat to you being, you know, alive? The crab meat in and of itself is not poisonous, but since the diet of the crab is so diverse, there have actually been reports of fatalities of poisoning arising from the meat's consumption, due to exposure to what the crab itself ate while it was alive. In some reported cases, the victim's hearts actually stopped beating. They literally died from cardiac flatline. Primarily, it's suspected that this is due to the crab eating the sea mango, Cerebra mancas, which contains cardiotoxic chemicals that will get transmitted through the coconut crab when it is consumed. So, eating the crab might be a gamble of whether or not 
it itself has had sea mango for lunch. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't like tossing proverbial dice to figure out whether or not my dinner is going to kill me. Oh, and there's also the whole we probably shouldn't hunt them to extinction thing because we need to conserve the species. You know, that too. Of course, in a perfect world, they wouldn't mess with us and we wouldn't mess with them, but Earth's not so perfect, so sometimes we have to interact. It might be annoying, but stealing your stuff may be the least of your problems if the crab decides to use its crushing grip strength on you. Now, ideally, you'd avoid this situation, but stuff happens, and should you happen to be so unlucky, there's apparently a hilarious way to potentially save yourself. Thomas Hale Streets, who was an American naturalist in the late 1800s and early 1900s, wrote of a trick used by locals in such a dire situation. He said, and I quote, It may be interesting to know that in such a dilemma the gentle titillation of the under-soft parts of the body with any light material will cause the crab to loosen its hold. Guys, apparently you can literally just tickle their bellies to get them to let go. (laughs) Is that not the greatest possible thing? Of course, that's if this is actually true, which I have had honestly a hard time verifying, but dear Poseidon, I hope it is. There's one final link between the coconut crab and humans that I think is worth discussing this episode, and it's tied to one of the most intriguing and pervasive mysteries in all of American history. This mystery is going to take us all the way back to the fateful morning of July 2nd, 1937, a day when history was in the process of being made. On the island of Leh, New Guinea, a pair of legendary adventure seekers prepared for one of the final legs in a historic attempt to circumnavigate the globe by plane. Of course, the intrepid pioneers were none other than navigator Fred Noonan and the star of the show, pilot Amelia Earhart. Their next flight would take their twin-engine Lockheed Electra plane to Howland Island in the central Pacific Ocean. Waiting at the atoll for their arrival was the U.S. Coast Guard Itasca, ready to guide the aviators in for a landing. That was the plan, anyway. But the clouds in the sky and faulty radio communications led to a different outcome. After losing contact with the Itasca, Earhart and Noonan disappeared never to be seen or heard from again. Earhart was and is a legend. There was a massive search for her after her disappearance, but it bore no results. Eighteen months after her disappearance, she was declared legally dead, and since then, efforts to uncover the truth have spared no quarter. But still, even now, 84 years after she vanished we still have no conclusive answers. Only theories. But one theory about Earhart is my favorite. The Garner Island or Nicomaroro hypothesis. The hypothesis holds that, after losing contact with the Itasca, Earhart and Noonan turned around and searched for other islands to land on. The story goes that, after things went wrong, they found and crashed on Nicomaroro Island, where they may have survived as castaways, but eventually perished. The theory is rather compelling. Artifacts that could match Earhart's plane have been found there, along with something that could have been her shoe. Even bones that could have been hers have been found. 
Though whether or not these pieces of metal, plexiglass, and bone material actually did belong to Earhart has been hotly debated. Without a full body or any other actually conclusive evidence, it is hard to say for sure. But why was it that Earhart's body was never found? Sure, this could all be hogwash and they could have crashed into the sea and be at the bottom of the ocean, but holding to the theory that they crashed on Nicomaroro and survived for some time as castaways, the local coconut crabs are the bow tie that wrap up her legendary story. This speculation holds that, after her death, the local populations of the gigantic crustaceans found her corpse and feasted on the legendary aviator, consuming most of her remains and scattering what they couldn't eat all about the island. Talk about a way to go. Of course, nobody knows the truth of the matter, and there's a lot of logic leaps and assumptions made to get there. But still, the idea that Amelia freaking Earhart, legendary aviator, was able to find Nikomaroro and had the guts and willpower to survive as a castaway before eventually succumbing and becoming food for the island's ecosystem? Honestly, it's a compelling story, and one that would be really, really cool if it were true. I mean, honestly, if I got to choose the manner in which my rotting corpse could go, eaten and dispersed by coconut crabs is easily top 10. I don't care how nice my coffin might be, feed me to monster crabs any day of the week. Between both fact and myth, these tree-climbing, island-conquering crabs are some of the coolest creatures that could possibly grace our planet. Just think about how many obstacles to living on land they've had to overcome. From developing new ways to smell, to finding shells for protection, to having to find ways to reproduce and spread, it is truly nothing short of a miracle that these crabs exist at all. Though whether these crabs are adorably tenacious or some kind of creature from your worst nightmares, that dear listener, is for you to decide. For now, though, I think we've just about wrapped up with today's episode of Biodiversity. As always, thank you, a huge thank you for listening. I hope you didn't get too crabby during the wait between these episodes. If you liked the episode today, please recommend it to your friends and neighbors. Leave a rating or review, too. It really helps the show grow. And hey, if you ever feel down in the future, you can do what I do and imagine tickling the belly of a giant monster crab. Bet you can't do it without smiling. I'll see you guys next time. Bacall thought she had me played, see? It was a clever trick, purposefully losing a worthless counterfeit necklace to collect on the insurance. Of course, Bacall never actually counted on me solving the case, no. No one would have ever thought a crab could be the culprit. After I had failed, the insurance would have had no choice but to pay up. It was a unique plan, I'll give it that. By giving the crab the counterfeit, she thought it'd be impossible to find, at least not until she'd collected her cash and boarded the quickest flight off the island. Robber crabs have a penchant for shiny things, see? Carrying wallet and whiskey bottle alike into the jungle, never to be seen again. The breadcrumbs of the broken real necklace bits and false witnesses was clever too, but call it a hunch I wasn't buying her little sob story. There had to have been a reason she was in the jungle and at night, no less. Talking to Jupiter, this was her whole plan from the start. She'd owed Jupiter money, see, and lots of it. A gambling problem will tend to do that to a dame. 
This whole scheme was her ticket out. It's just too bad too many people had to get bonked over the head with coconuts for it to work. She used the crabs for that, too. A falling coconut is no picnic. All I know is that after the night she ran out of my office, I never saw her again. I think about her from time to time when the whiskey hits too hard. Maybe the crabs with their flicking antenna and beady eyes know the truth. But if she got punished for her crimes or if she really deserved it, that's not for me to decide. Maybe this evening I'll head over to Old Scratchy's for a pina colada. I hear the coconuts this time of year are superb. Superb.